Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews. Chapter 6. And we will be in uh, beginning in verse 13 this morning. We're actually going to actually start uh, trying to uh, exegete verses 16 and 17, Lord willing. But let's just pick it up in verse 16, if you will. Hebrews chapter 6, verse uh, 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now, you will recall that the author of Hebrews not only wants to warn these professing believers of the eternal consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ, but he also wants the true believers in the church to have the full assurance of the hope that they have in Christ. Remember, every church uh, since the beginning of the church is really made up of three types of individuals, right? There are those who truly know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There are those who profess Christ but have never really surrendered their life to Christ. And then there's the unsaved or those seeking, so those three. So the author of Hebrews, uh, first he, he wants to, uh, again, he, he's warned the professing believers about the consequences of rejecting Christ. Now he wants to encourage the believers. He wants to tell them that, uh, that he sees something different in them that he didn't see in those who were only professing Christ. So he speaks confidently about what he believes is the genuineness of their faith. He speaks about the things that they have demonstrated and are continuing to demonstrate in their life, and those are the things that accompany salvation. He's saying if someone is truly saved, then these are the things that are invariably found in their life. In fact, he detailed those for us back in chapter 6, verse 10, and he said those two things are work and love. Now, the work that he's talking about is not how you earn salvation. It's not a work-based salvation. It's a faith-based salvation. That's not the kind of work he's talking about. Uh, one of the things that accompany salvation is bearing fruit. We, uh, again, this is a review. We spent several weeks on this, is bearing fruit. If we are truly saved then at some point in time, we should bear some fruit, okay? Now, again, we're not fruit inspectors. We don't know how much fruit you're supposed to bear. We're not running around measuring, okay, you have a lot of fruit in your life. You have very little in your life. You must be more righteous than the other. No, that's not what the Word of God tells us to do. But the Word of God is very clear that if we are truly saved, we will bear fruit. We don't produce fruit. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. We bear fruit as the Holy Spirit works in and through us. And all believers bear some fruit, some more than others, but all bear some fruit. The other thing the true believers demonstrate is their love for Christ. And one of the ways that they demonstrate their love for Christ is the way they serve one another. It's the way they serve one another. So he encourages them here uh, to diligently apply all that they have heard and learned to their faith so that they will have the assurance of hope to the very end. That's what he says in verse 11. He does not want them to be lazy or sluggish in their faith. He wants them to take everything that has been taught to them and apply it to their lives in a way that brings God glory. He says that's the difference between these true believers and the professing believers. The professing believers are hearing all the same things. 
They're in the same community of faith. They see people serving one another. They see the fruit that's born in their lives, in others' lives, but they're not bearing any fruit in their own, and they're not serving one another. He says, listen, to you, to you professing believers, be like these true believers and apply what you've learned to your faith. Diligently apply that. And then he's saying to the true believers, keep on doing what you're doing as you're an example for those who are professing believers. And he wants to encourage them. The things that you're doing are the things the true believers do. And the author of Hebrews is saying, I'm seeing those things in your life. And that encourages me to know that you're a true believer. Now, to encourage them to hold steady and to be patient and to remain steadfast in their faith, the author of Hebrews provides a real-life example of what that looks like in someone's life. And he wants to choose somebody that they're all familiar with. And the person he chooses that they're all very familiar with is Abraham. Abraham was a man who had waited patiently upon the promises of God. Why is that important? Because that's exactly what he wants these uh, who are in this church, this little church in the epistle of Hebrews, that's exactly what he wants them to do. He's saying, don't lose your hope. Don't drift away. Remember the warning in, in, uh, in chapter 2. Don't drift away. Don't miss this opportunity you have to enter God's rest. The second warning in chapter 3 and 4. And don't be like those who've already fallen away, who have turned their back on Jesus and are never coming back. That's the warning in chapter 6. Say, don't do that. Here's a guy, Abraham, who had lots of trials, who faltered sometime in his faith, who had some doubts, who tried to take things in his own hands and, and circumvent God's will. But through it all, he never lost his faith. And he remained steadfast, and he waited patiently for the promises of God. And guess what happened? He inherited those promises. And so he uses a real-life example in Abraham that they're all familiar with. And we saw that. That's in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Go ahead and just uh, flip back there. Okay, We're going to do the same thing we did last week, so you want to probably keep your finger in Hebrews 6, your thumb, maybe your other thumb, however you're going to do it. In Genesis chapter 12. I'll leave the logistics up to you there. Okay. And so remember, in Genesis chapter 12, this is where we see the Abrahamic covenant, right? Genesis chapter 12. And God makes these promises to Abram. That's his name back then, Abram, which means exalted father, Abram. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to a land which I will show you. Pick up your stuff, all of your belongings, and your family, and move to a place. I'll tell you where that is when you get there. How's that? And Abram responds faithfully and does what God says. And then in verses 2 and 3, he makes another promise to him. He makes a covenant. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God promises Abram, 
that he would bless him, he would multiply his children, he'll make him into a great nation, and through his family line, through his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And God would make his name great, bless those who blessed him, curse those who curse him. And then those promises, remember, were given to Abram again in chapter 13, 15, 17, 18, and 22. Just to reinforce again and again and again. Now, mind you, when Abram receives these great promises, he is 75 years old and his wife is barren. And she's well past the age of childbearing, at least in the traditional view. But time continued to march on since God first promised Abram an heir. Then in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, something very important happens. Abram believed the Lord, and God credited to him as righteousness. Abram believed that he would become a father, that his offspring would have children, that his line would multiply to be as numerous as the stars in heaven. And Abram trusted in God and his word, and because he trusted in God and his word, and because of his great faith, God declared him righteous. This is 14 years before circumcision, which we find in Genesis 17. It's hundreds of years before the law. What's the point of that? Is that neither of those things are what declared Abram a righteous man. It wasn't the sign of the covenant. It wasn't circumcision. It wasn't an external thing, right? It wasn't the law, the keeping of the law. It was faith, his faith in God and who God is and hit and what his and the truth of his word. Those two things. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Notice Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. Remember? God ratifies this covenant again. Now, why does God keep repeating it and, and, and coming back and doing different things and reassuring Abraham? It's because his faith needed reassured. Time is marching on. And it seems like maybe God has forgotten his promises to Abram. And so God, every time then, Abram tries to do something silly, right? Tries to deny his wife as his wife, tries to, you know. Each time he does, he's got heroic moments, and then he's got moments where you're like, Abram, what do you think? Come on now. But isn't that a lot like us? Isn't that a lot like us? We have some moments where we're like, ah, oh, praise God, I responded the right way. And then we have other times where like, ah, it wasn't really me. I'm not sure what happened. Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 18, God ratifies this covenant with Abram. And how does he do that? Remember in the ancient Near East, they would cut an animal in half and split it. And they, the, both parties would walk through the, the pieces of the animal and they would say, basically, we are swearing this covenant to one another that if one of us breaks this covenant, so... Uh, so what happened to us is what happened to these animals. In other words, our word is binding together. Okay? So that would happen. That's exactly what God does here in Genesis 15, verses 12 to 18, right? Sun was going down, deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, 
Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where they will be enslaved, oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the, night, or, or for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Verse 17, when it came about, when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay? So here we see the land, right? We have the land, the seed, and the blessings. Those are the three parts of the Abrahamic covenant. That word covenant in, uh, in Hebrew is the word berith, and it means to cut. So just to kind of remind you if, you, if you know those things, that's what was going on. Notice that it's God who walks through the pieces, not the two parts, right? It's God who walks through the pieces, uh, showing that this covenant is God's promise to Abraham is unconditional, unilateral, means God the one who who designed the covenant, God's the one who ensures the covenant, and God's the one who will ensure that it will be fulfilled. So it is unconditional. None of this is based on how Abram is going to do. It's all based in whose faithfulness? Not Abram's, God's faithfulness. It's unconditional, unilateral, and guess what? Eternal. Eternal. And that's a good thing, because we know as we read on in Genesis that Abram has lots of lapses, doesn't he? He sure does. One of those comes in chapter 16, the very next ch chapter, where Sarai, his wife, becomes impatient, and she wants Abram to produce an heir through her handmaid, Hagar. Well, that blows up. That was never a good idea, and uh, it gets worse from there. But Abram listens to Sarai. Soon Hagar conceived an illegitimate son named Ishmael. At that time, Genesis 16, 6 tells us that Abram was how old? 86 years old. How long has he been waiting? 11 years for an heir. 11 years he's been waiting. Some of us can't wait 11 minutes for breakfast, right? 11 years he's waiting. But again, God comes to him in chapter 17 to encourage his heart. And Genesis 17, verse 1 tells us that God... Uh, it's now been 24 years. So how old is Abram? 99 he is now. He doesn't, you know, he's, he's not getting closer to childbearing. It's like way in the distance, all those childbearing years, right? He's now uh, Abraham, okay, father of many nations. God changes his name. He changes Sarai's name to Sarah, which means princess. And eventually, in God's perfect timing, we read in chapter 21, again, after a couple lapses and some bad things happening, some heroic things and some bad things, Abraham saw God fulfill his promise, and the child of promise, Isaac, is born in chapter 21. Isaac was the child that God had promised. God gave Abraham and Sarah Isaac through a barren woman. Why? to demonstrate that he and he alone was the one who provided all that was necessary for that covenant to be fulfilled. Now, let's look again, if we will, to uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Because here, 
There's another testing that happens with Abraham that happens after this, after Isaac is born. And so we see in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. So here we read about one more testing of Abraham's faith. And notice that our text says, when God made the promise. What promise is he talking about? He's talking about the promise he made clear back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The promise God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant. Notice that it says in our text, since he could swear by no one greater than himself, he did what? He swore by himself. When did that happen? When did God swear by himself that the covenant or that the God's promises to Abraham would be would have the full assurance of God's oath? Well, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 14, he says, Surely I will bless you, and I surely will multiply you. And remember, that is a direct quote from Genesis chapter 22. What happened in Genesis chapter 22? Again, this is all review. That quote is significant because that comes immediately after Abraham's test by God to sacrifice his only son. Isaac. And we looked at that in great detail. We saw last time that uh, when we saw the text in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, that this is not a temptation, but a test, right? What's the difference between a test and a temptation? Incidentally, in the New Testament, it's the same exact word. What's the difference between a test and a temptation? It's not the actual event. It's how we respond. If we respond by faith, it's a testing of our faith. If we try to handle it on our own, it's a temptation to abandon God and take matters into our own hands. Isn't that exactly what we saw here? How will Abraham respond? So this test is like none other he's ever encountered. And we saw in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, that God is calling Abraham to sacrifice his son. Remember, this is the son they've been waiting for for a quarter of a century. 24 years since God originally told them they would have a son who would be the heir uh, and, would, and uh, would be the object of this, I should say the heir of these promises. This is the child that the angel of the Lord came and spoke to them specifically about. This is the child that it would ensure God's promises would be fulfilled and Abraham's lineage would be vast. Abraham has to make a conscious decision about what he's going to do as he's listening to God tell him about sacrificing his son. He must either remain faithful and trust God by faith and obey what God tells him to do, or he must tell God that he won't do it and tell him that either by the words that tumble out of his mouth or by his actions where he refuses to do what God says. What choice would Abraham make? Well, we saw last time in Genesis 22, verse 5, we will worship and return to you, Abraham says. Why does he say that? Because he has such great faith in God, we find out later in Hebrews 11, that he was so sure that God was going to fulfill his promises that the only way he could reconcile sacrificing his son and having his son fulfill those promises is that he believed that God was going to raise his son if indeed he needed to kill him. 
So he builds an altar. He marches on steadfastly towards the mountain. He builds an altar. He arranges the wood. He binds his son and lays him upon the wood. He raises the knife to kill his son. The angel of the Lord intercedes and calls out to him not to harm his son. God says to him, I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. It's at this point that what God states there in Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17 is what's quoted for us there in verse 14 in Hebrews 6. Why does he do that? Well, verse 15 in Hebrews 6. And so, having waited patiently, or patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Abraham waited patiently for God to fulfill what he had promised to him. How patiently? 25 years. What was his reward? He obtained the promises that God had promised to deliver to him. Why did Abraham believe God's promises? Because God himself is the basis of, of his faith. God's promises are not secured by Abraham's faith. They're secured by God's faithfulness. Those promises were obtained by Abraham's faith, but they were without a doubt secured and provided by God. And that's important. There's a reason why the author of Hebrews, of all the Old Testament patriarchs he could have chosen, why does he pick Abraham? Because he wants to show somebody whose life looks like God has forgotten about me in the midst of my trials. I have been going on and on and on and occasionally I get a little good news that seems like God's working. But other than that, he just keeps asking me to wait and wait and wait. Abraham faltered many times in his faith along the way, but God never faltered in his promises. In fact, he could not, since those very promises were given, ratified, secured, and commemorated, and stated in his holy word. So, we see now the assurance of God's promises to Abraham, but the author mentioned another aspect of God's assurance, and that was the oath that God swore to himself in verse 13. You see that? So now, having already introduced this topic of oath, oaths, the author of Hebrews now explains why that oath is significant. He wants to show them this was a big deal. And you may have just kind of skipped over this. So he wants to point that out. He wants them to see this is yet another assurance for Abraham. Yet another assurance for these believers that were being persecuted in this little church and to us as well. So he picks that up in in verse 16 of chapter 6. Notice he says here, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. So the first thing the author of Hebrews does is remind uh, us how people use oaths. How do men and women use oaths? Well, when we swear an oath, we swear to someone a higher authority than ourselves. Right? That's the whole point of an oath. For example, when we are going to give testimony in a courtroom, we swear an oath to tell the whole truth, uh, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? Now, why do we need to even do that? Well, 
Why would we even need to swear an oath with our hand on the Bible indicating higher authority if we always told the truth? I mean, if you think about it, the whole point of giving an oath is to ensure that we are recognizing there's a higher authority than us, and so we need to tell the truth. Or we would face the consequences. Why is it that we even need to state an oath before we give our testimony in a court of law? Well, for starters, I know this is a big shock to you, we're not always truthful. Yes. I know, that's a big shocker, right? Generally, the reason for the reason people have disputes is because two parties, one of those two parties is not living up to the agreement that the other one, right, that they made together. The oath or the pledge or a contract, if you will, is based on the understanding that if one of us doesn't live up to this contract, this oath, this covenant, that the higher authority has the right to administer justice or punishment, if you will. In fact, that is what the oath, uh, that's what the text tells us. An oath is given as a confirmation is an end of every dispute. In other words, that's the end of all the argument because the parties have sworn that this is what's going to happen if we don't follow through. But notice again in verse 13, since God could swear by no one greater like we do, he swears by himself. Since there is none greater than God, for God to swear an oath, he has to swear an oath to his own name. That means, just like God's promises are rooted in the character of God, so is the oath that he swore as well. So God not only promised Abraham that his promises would be fulfilled, he also guaranteed those promises by swearing an oath to himself. But here's a question for you. Why would God swear an oath to himself if it's already absolutely certain that his promises will come true? Why would God do that? Verse 17 tells us the answer. So he says here, in the same way, in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. God desired to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. You see, unlike us, God is absolutely trustworthy. God didn't swear an oath by himself so that his purpose wouldn't change to what he told Abraham was his promise, right? He didn't say, well, I better make sure I swear this oath to make sure that if I don't follow through, Abraham, you know, this will secure what I just told Abraham, the promise I just made to Abraham. I better make an oath to myself just to make sure I don't change my mind later. No, that's not what happened. This is not a case of let me swear an oath by myself just in case I'm tempted to change my mind. Now, God swore an oath by himself so that Abraham would know that God's purpose is without a doubt unchanging. That if he says it and he declares it, it is truth and it will happen. Think about that just for a moment, would you? God did not swear an oath because he's untrustworthy like us. He swears an oath because our faith is so weak. He didn't swear an oath for his behalf. He swore an oath for our behalf. 
on our behalf. Think about that. The God of the universe condescends to take an oath just like human, not because there's something lacking in him, but rather because there's something lacking in us. God did not swear an oath because he's a because he's absolutely trustworthy, and yet he did so for us to assure us in our faith. He didn't need to swear an oath. He swore an oath because he's already absolutely trustworthy, not for his benefit, for ours. Think about that for a second. He wants us to know that although you may have some doubts and although some uncertain things may occur in your life, that it's not an uncertain thing to place all of your trust in God. And he wants you to know that it's not an uncertain thing to trust your life to God. And so he condescends and takes a human tradition that was meant to secure the promises and he condescends to say I'm doing this not for me but for you for us there's nothing uncertain about that God knows how weak we are and so he swears by himself those promises to us God swears by himself so that Abraham and us will not have uncertainty or doubt but will have the full assurance of our faith What an absolutely astonishing act of condescension by God. It shows his great love for us. He didn't need to do that. If he says it, it's true. He cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. He cannot do anything out of his very character. And by his very attributes, he is the definition of truth. And so when he speaks, his word is truth. John 17, 17. Thy word is truth. But that's not all. Look at verse 17, specifically at the words desire and purpose. Now, grammatically, these two words are linked together. I'll spare you all the grammar there. Just trust me on that one. Desire and purpose are linked together. The word desire means to desire with a very specific intent. It's not like God just said, oh, I really want this to happen. No, he purposed that it would happen. That was the intent. In other words, God deliberately wanted to demonstrate the unchangeableness of his purpose. Now notice to whom God wanted this demonstrated. We already know from the previous text in this passage that God wanted to demonstrate this to Abraham. But verse 17 tells us that God has someone else in mind as well that he wants to demonstrate his faithfulness and his purpose. Who is that? The heirs of the promise. Beloved, that's you and me. We're the heirs of his promise. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're the heirs of his promise. How is it possible that a promise made to Abraham thousands of years ago was meant for us today? It's possible because through Abraham... He's the one who received the promise of God, but we are the objects of that promise. So when God took Abraham and pointed to all those stars and said, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars, he was talking about you and me through Christ. 
through our faith in Christ, we are those descendants. We placed our faith in Christ. We inherited the spiritual blessings that accompanied this promise. Keep your place here, but turn over to Galatians chapter 3 for just a second. Galatians chapter 3. Go back a couple books. Verse 26. This is a passage about salvation. For you are all sons of God, verse 26, chapter 3. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, that's a spiritual baptism, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Some of the aspects of the Abrahamic covenant are for Israel alone. They're yet to be fulfilled, like the land. But the spiritual aspect of God's promises are all realized through our faith in Christ. In other words, just like when Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, when we believed Christ, we were also declared righteous. and We became God's children. We were adopted into his family. We are heirs of his promises. When God receives you through faith, God is honoring his promise, not merely to you, but to his own son, Jesus Christ. And he fulfills his unchangeable promise that he swore in an oath by himself and given to Abraham so long ago. All of that was done by God's sovereign desire to demonstrate his unchangeable purpose to the heirs of the promise so that we would have the full assurance of our hope. All right, beloved, we're running out of time. Here's what I want you to stay and to remember so far. Can you see how this message would have been encouraging to those who were being persecuted day and night, who were struggling in deep trials, who were just getting battered? They've been kicked out of the synagogue. Their children cannot study under the rabbi. They, they can't change and exchange their goods at the market anymore. They're unwelcomed. They're gossiped of behind their back. They're persecuted for all things. This is the only community they know. This is the one they've grown up with. And now they are completely ostracized. And in response to that, they're getting battered, battered by those in Judaism, telling them to come back, that this is wrong, your thinking is wrong. And it's just a nonstop daily barrage of trials and temptations. Some of them succumbed to that, turned their back on their profession of Christ and went away. So the author of Hebrews here wants them to persevere despite all of the trials and persecution they're facing. He said, I want you to hold steadfast. He's already chastised the professing believers for not applying their faith diligently to their lives. He's warned the professing believers of the severe consequences of falling away. He's already encouraged them by reinforcing the things he's seen in their lives that's not like the professing believers. He's seen the fruit that's born in the true believers' lives. He's seen the love that they've demonstrated. He's trying to encourage them to hang in there. He wants them to persevere, to not give up, to remain faithful, 
even in the midst of their trials. He wants them to wait patiently like Abraham did so they can inherit the promises. And he wants them, while they're waiting, to have the full assurance of their hope because that hope is not rooted in their faithfulness but God's faithfulness to the promises he made. Yes, Abraham faltered, but he persevered. He never walked away from his faith. He wants them to know that the entire reason that God swore an oath by himself was not because he was lacking anything, but because their faith was faltering again and again and again. He wants us to know, beloved, that it is not an uncertain thing to put your faith and trust in God. It is not an uncertain thing to trust your life to God. It's not an uncertain thing to remain steadfast in your faith in the midst of a storm. He wants us to know that. God knew that we were going to face lots of storms, some physical, some emotional, some in our relationships. But he says, remain steadfast. Remain steadfast. How does that help us, beloved? It helps us weather the storms of life, doesn't it? When we face a difficult trial, when we think that our circumstances have overcome us, when we're tempted to just give up, God says, don't give up. Trust me. Remember those promises I made to Abraham? All of those were fulfilled. Why? Because he waited patiently. Remain steadfast. Matter of fact, in the next few verses, he's going to say, when you feel like your faith is getting battered all around in the big waves, Jesus Christ is the anchor for your very soul. He says, trust me. When we're persecuted for our faith, when we're tempted to hide our witness for him, God says, you are already overcomers. Trust me. When the physical trials of this life are beating us down every day, God says, I will not give you more than you can handle, and I will always provide a way out. Trust me. Trust me. How do we claim those promises? By faith, just like Abraham did. How do we know they're true? Because they're rooted in the very character and integrity of God. And because they're rooted in his very character, they're trustworthy and true, and they're irrevocable. Beloved, Christ is indeed the anchor of our souls. He's the author, as the author will explain this further next time when we meet together. Until then, take heart in the full assurance of your faith. Take heart in the hope that we have in Christ, that he is the refuge that we cling to in the midst of the storms. And God purposed that we would know this so that we would cling to him as the trials of life batter us. And even though our lives are filled with lots of uncertainty, there's no uncertainty in your faith in Christ. Because his promises never change. God cannot lie. He's immutable. He cannot change. And if he says it, and he promises it, it's true. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? We asked those questions last week, right? Do you believe that? 
It's very easy to believe that when things are going swimmingly, isn't it? God is good all the time, Pastor. That's right. But what about when things are getting a little rough? See, that's where the rubber hits the road, as they like to say. That's when your faith really gets tested. Probably easy for Abraham to have great faith when Isaac was born. But I wonder what he was thinking when he had to lay his son and bind him on the top of that wood for that altar. See, that's the testing of your faith. Now, none of us will ever be called to do that, will we? But you have your own testings, don't you? Some of you have physical trials right now that you're trying to work through. Some of you have loved ones who don't know the Lord, and that's a trial. You've been praying and praying and praying and asking God. Some of you have children who have not yet known the Lord. Some of you have family members who don't know the Lord. You just you have lots of trials in this life. You have to make that decision on what you're going to do. God says, trust me, for my, promise can, my promises cannot help but be fulfilled. Because they're not based on your faithfulness, but mine. I hope you cling to that, beloved, when you're facing your trials. And I know many of you here are doing that right now. Persevere. Cling to Christ. He is indeed the anchor of your soul. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the truth of your word. Lord, thank you for the reminder that we do have times where we falter. We do have times, Lord, where we take matters into our own hands. We do have times, Lord, when the, when the waves are crashing against us. Sometimes that's spiritual. Sometimes that's things that happen in our family. Sometimes they're emotional things. We're tempted to doubt you, Lord. We're tempted to just take things in our own hands and not wait patiently, as your word tells us. We thank you for the example of Abraham, who indeed waited patiently, Lord. We struggle with patience. In a world where three minutes seems like a long time to go to get food and a drive through Lord, we can't imagine waiting 25 years. And yet, Lord, that's what your word calls us to do, to remain steadfast, to cling to Christ as the anchor of our soul. Thank you, Father that our promises are rooted in your faithfulness, not ours. And I thank you, Lord, that your word is true. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.